This is the Serious Sira Podcast, Episode 3, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Welcome to Serious Sira, Episode 3. This is the podcast for serious Muslims who love the Messenger of Allah, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and want to discover the beautiful life model he left for us to follow. In today's class, we're going to discuss the following topics. Prophet Muhammad wasallam, as a teenager and young man. The history of the Black Stone. The Prophet's marriage to Khadijah. Anha. The Prophet's love for Khadijah. Anha. The story of Zayd ibn Haditha. And finally, the story of Ali ibn Abi Talib. Stay tuned for Serious Sira Episode 3. Having said that, also the Prophet, peace and blessing be upon him, made the, the wealthy people, made them feel responsible for their brothers because in the Hadi Ummatakum, Ummatan Wahida, Wa Anarabukum Fa'abudun, this Ummah of yours is one Ummah, and I am your Lord, so worship me. So the Prophet, peace and blessing be upon him, made a bond of brotherhood between these Muslims, the blacks and the whites and the Arabs and the, the non-Arabs and the Persians and the men and the women and the rich and the poor. They were one Ummah and they were a magnificent brother. Now in our last class, we spoke about the early childhood of Prophet Muhammad We discussed how he was born after his father died and then how he was nursed by Halima Saadiyah, uh, who was a Bedouin, who was a Bedouin. We spoke about how the tradition of the Arabs at that time was, those Arabs who lived in the city at that time, was to send their children with the Bedouins, the newly born children with the Bedouins, to be nursed and raised in the desert so they can get, uh, learn pure Arabic and also be exposed to cleaner and a cleaner and more healthy environment. We spoke about how Halima Saadiyah received many blessings after she began to care for him and nurse him. And even though the, the tradition at the time was for a wet nurse like Halima to nurse a child for two years and then return the child to their mother, Halima insisted on caring for Prophet Muhammad for an extra two years. And so he wound up staying with her for a total of four years. Then he returned, he returned to his mother, who was named Amina. He returned to his mother when he was about four or five years old, but she died about two years later. And then his grandfather, Abdul Muttalib took over, took him under his care. And then also Abdul Muttalib died about two years after that. And from that point on, Prophet Muhammad was raised by his uncle Abu Talib from the age of eight on to adulthood. So we also discussed how some of the scholars mentioned that these tragedies helped prepare Prophet Muhammad for, uh, for having a, more, a softer heart for people, for caring for people who were weaker, who were part of the weaker part of society, such as orphans and widows. And we saw how that was part of his character. We, didn't, we, didn't, we haven't seen it yet, but you will see, inshallah, how that was part of his character when he got older. And also that Prophet Muhammad at this time, he was, um, at a, at a, as a young man, he was a shepherd. And we spoke about how being a shepherd helped prepare him to to lead people as as an adult. And we also spoke about how, uh, well, my guess was that he was probably a shepherd as a teenager, and Allah knows best. By the time he was in his early 20s, he was working for Khadijah, anha, and we'll speak about that in a few minutes, inshallah. All the prophets were shepherds. We spoke about that also. 
and being a shepherd helped train the prophets for leading people and for and training them to care for people. We spoke about how sheep are very weak and you know, you know, we have to face that they're pretty stupid animals. They do not run very fast. They don't have they don't always have horns. Some some uh, breeds of, sh- of sheep do have horns, but most sheep do not have horns. They don't have any defenses. They're not very large animals. And on top of that, they're not very intelligent either. So they don't have any natural defenses like horses can run, cows uh, or oxen. They have horns. Sheep really are just soft, fluffy meals on legs. And so they're pretty much just up in the air for wolves and, and mountain lions or any other uh, predators out there. And on top of that, like I said, they're not very intelligent. So if you let if you leave sheep to their own defenses, they'll, you know, get swept away by rivers, walk off cliffs. So you need a sh- uh, shepherd to guide them away from harming themselves. So and if you're not careful, you know, a sheep will sheep will pretty much destroy themselves if you if you're not careful. So you need a shepherd to guide them. And this was preparation for Prophet Muhammad and all the prophets for protecting and guiding their followers and keeping them from harming themselves with their own stupidity and also protecting them from thre- from threats from the outside. Okay, we're going to talk a little bit about Prophet Muhammad's life as a young man. And I'm sure you all heard this before, how he was known in Mecca as being so truthful that he had earned the nickname Al-Amin. Some say Al-Sadiq Al-Amin, which means the trustworthy friend. Now, the t- there was a time, in fact, when the Kaaba had been damaged after a flood, and so the people of Quraysh, the people of Mecca, they had to work to rebuild it. Now, after they in in the process of rebuilding it, they had to take the the black stone out. And after rebuilding it, it was now time to bring the black stone back into it. And an argument arose between the the four major tribes who would have the honor of bringing the the black stone back into the Kaaba. And all of the tribes they wanted to have, to have the honor and almost broke out into a scuffle or a little battle. When one of the elders of Kodesh said, let's let the first man to walk through, to walk through into our vicinity, let's let him decide. And this was their way of just leaving things to fate. And as it happened, as the story goes, the first person to walk through was Prophet Muhammad Wasallam. At the time, he was not a prophet yet. He was probably just in his early 20s or maybe his late teens. So he wasn't a prophet yet. Well, he hasn't received the message of prophet as yet, but still he this is an example of his ability to negotiate between different people and also to resolve differences and also to act as a leader and to be as fair and to think outside the box to find solutions to to major problems. And so we know the story. It's a very popular story. You may you probably have heard it before, but we'll just go over it quickly. After you heard all of the all of the arguments from the different clans of the Quraysh, these are the major clans. Uh, his decision or his way to resolve everything was he took off his cloak, he put the black stone on top of the cloak and had a representative from each clan lift up a corner of the cloak and carry the black stone back into the Kaaba and then he set it back into his place by himself and that resolved the, difference, the differences and kept everyone from uh, descending into warfare or into battle. Now, before we go too much further, let's talk a little bit about the history of the Black Stone on Hajrat al-Aswad. Now, some people say it was a meteorite and Allah knows best. But what we do know from the authentic Hadith was that Allah did send the Black Stone down from the heavens or from the sky, basically. So it fell from the sky. Initially, it was all white, but the sins of man turned it black. And that is how it is now. Now, I've heard many stories about the Black Stone myself, and I don't have proof about all of them. So, you know, we're not going we'll go into a, into a little bit, but I'm not going to dwell on 
the unconfirmed stories too much, but I'm just going to bring them out there so you have some references, inshallah. You might be wondering, what is the significance of the black stone? Why is it there? Now, one of the stories that I've heard is that it came down during the, during the time of Prophet Adam, alayhi salam, and that it was like a marker for the first place of prayer. And Allah knows best about that one. There's also a story in the Bible about, I believe it's Prophet Yaqub, Jacob. Uh, Jacob Jonah, I can't remember the, the, the Bible story. But at one point in time, he had he established a place of worship. And I've heard some Muslims say that this was... That this place where Yaqub established was actually the Kaaba. I'm sorry, not the Kaaba, but the Black Stone. And later on, Prophet Ibrahim and his son Ismail, we do know that they built the Kaaba around the Black Stone. And Allah knows best if any of these stories of these other prophets are absolutely true. And Allah knows best about those things. Now, obviously, we do not worship the Black Stone. You'll hear some you know, anti-Muslims or enemies of Islam saying that Muslims worship the black stone. We do not worship the black stone. The black stone is the creation of Allah. We do not worship the creation. At best, it is some. It is something like the moon and the sun. It is a symbol that Allah has given to us. It is, it is a creation of Allah that we can use to reflect on the power of Allah and the might of Allah. But we do not worship the black stone. That should be very obvious. Remember, it is a creation of Allah. There is no worshiping the creation. We only worship the creator. It was just a stone sent down by Allah for reasons that only Allah knows. Now, whether the black stone is there or not, whether it exists or not, if it disappeared off the face of the earth tomorrow, we will still continue to worship Allah. There's, that doesn't change. In fact, there was a time many years after the death of Prophet Muhammad when an Ismaili Shiite group invaded Mecca and actually destroyed a portion of the Kaaba and stole the black stone. They stole the black stone and they held it hostage in an area that is now that we now know of uh, know of as Bahrain. They held it hostage for like twenty years, over twenty years. But during this time, the Muslims didn't change the Qibla to Bahrain. They continued to, you know, pray towards the direction of the Qibla in Mecca, the, towards the Kaaba. This is proof that you know the black stone is not worshipped. So when you hear these stories of people try to say things about Islam. Just know that this is just more anti-Islam propaganda that people will bring up. I mean, you're talking about people who worship crosses, talking about us worshiping the stone or stuff at all. We don't do that, and this has nothing to nothing to do with it. You know, the black stone is a symbol of Allah, and only Allah, when I say a symbol, a symbol placed by Allah, not that it represents Allah, it does not represent Allah. It is a creation of Allah, just like the sun and the moon and the ocean, something we can reflect on, on the majesty of Allah, that Allah sent down the stone uh, many, many years ago, many centuries ago, eons ago, and is still around to this day by the mercy of Allah. In fact, uh, one of the, and some more history about the black stone is that um, long before the Ismaili group, which were called the Karnatines, I believe. Uh, I can't remember the actual, the actual name. But the Ismaili Shiite group, and I'm going into all the different multitude of Shiite groups out there, but the Ismailis is just one more group among groups of the Shiites. Long before that, there was a, there was a war between Abdullah ibn Zubair, who was the son of the great Sahaba Zubair ibn al-Awam, there's a war between him and Yazid ibn Muawiyah. Muawiyah was a companion of Prophet Muhammad and Muawiyah did have a conflict with uh, with Ali, and eventually Muawiyah wound up becoming the Khalifa or the leader of the Muslim world. 
uh, before Muawiyah died, he appointed his son Yazid as the next Khalifa, and this began the process of monotheistic stuff, uh, monarchical or hereditary uh, inheriting inheritance of the Khalifa. And from the time of Muawiyah, he passed the 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 leadership of the of the Caliphate to his son Yazid, and from that point on, the Caliph the Caliphate had been had been hereditarily. Uh, transfer from father to son, father to son, or at least within families from that point on. And he he did begin that that trend, and that is between him and Allah. But at this point in time, this was the beginning of the Umayyad dynasty. Muawiyah passing on the the title of Khalifa of Khalifa to his son Yazid, who was not the most deserving person to receive the the caliphate if you we can argue that Muawiyah at least was a Sahaba. He was a companion of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Maybe Ali. Now, maybe definitely Ali deserved it more than Muawiyah, but Muawiyah was at least still a companion and even a scribe of the Quran. He wrote down the Quran during the lifetime of Prophet Muhammad. Yazid, however, did not have, there were many people who were more deserving of the Khalifa than Yazid. Uh, and one of these people was Abdullah ibn Zubair, who was a son of a Sahaba. Zubair ibn Awam was one of the 10 Sahabas promised paradise by Prophet Muhammad. He was one of the early. Mahajidun, one of the early people to accept Islam very, very early on in Mecca before the Hijrah. So Abdullah ibn Zubair definitely had more right to the caliphate than Yazid. A war broke out between them and the Umayyad, the Umayyad army, Yazid's army. They laid siege on Mecca. Abdullah ibn Zubair, he had control of Mecca. They laid siege on Mecca and they were launching stones from the hills around Mecca. Remember, Mecca is a valley you know, set in between, you know, surrounded by a bunch of mountains and hills. And so Yazid's army set up catapults around the Kaaba and around uh, the city of Mecca and were launching huge boulders into Mecca. And some of these boulders destroyed the Kaaba and also cracked the black stone. Uh, eventually, the army had to pull back because of uh, the um, oncoming hard season. So the army had to pull back. And during this brief interlude of peace, Abdullah ibn Zubair used these silver bands to reconnect the black stone and um, put it back together. So just going to show this an example of the fact that the black stone is simply a creation of Allah. It is um, a, a sign that Allah has given to us, just like the sun, the moon, the stars, and all these other things that Allah has given to us, which are much, much grander than the black stone is, yet we don't worship them. So just... Don't worry about the things people say about Islam. So I've been saying about Islam, about Muslims worshiping the blacks and all that stuff. That's obviously not true. Once again, whether the stone is there or not, we will continue to worship Allah. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. We will still continue to face the Kaaba uh, no matter what. That is the Qibla that Allah has set for us. And we'll continue that until the, until, uh, the end of time, until the day of judgment. And that's just the end of the story there for the black stone. So the black stone, once again, is just a sign a sign the law is given to us. Now back to the life of Prophet Muhammad وسلم, In his early 20s, we talked about how he was probably a young man during the whole dispute of about replacing the Kaaba. I'm sorry, replacing the stone back into the Kaaba. And we also spoke how he was a shepherd probably in his teens. It was definitely before he became, he was hired by, by uh, Khadijah. I'm going to get into that right now, actually. In his early 20s, he was hired by a wealthy widow named Khadijah bin Khwailid to manage her business. As I mentioned before, the Quraysh were well-established entrepreneur, entre entrepreneurs. They made their living by acting like middlemen, and they transported goods between Syria to the north and Yemen to the south. 
and not those is not what we know of the countries today as Syria and Yemen, but the area, basically Southern Arabia and Northern Arabia, if you want to put it like that. So when it was cold in the north, they would bring goods from Yemen to Syria. And when it was uh, cold in Yemen in the south, they would bring goods from Syria down to Yemen. That was how the Quraysh made their their business, how they, they were able to establish their their tribe as the most honorable and most noble tribe in in the Arabian Peninsula, and because of their connection to the Kaaba and their importance in the Hajj pilgrimage, they were protected from raids like everybody else were, were not protected, and they had to pretty much fear for their life. The Quraysh were able to establish themselves as very good businessmen, and they were insulated from many of the problems that other tribes uh, had to deal with because of their connection to the Kaaba. And Khadija, radiallahu anha, was one of those people who benefited from this from this status that the Quraysh had. And she had also built a thriving business. She had been married twice before uh, in establishment. And um, by the time she met Prophet Muhammad, she had been married twice before. Now, she did not actually get involved in the trade herself. She wasn't going out there negotiating and haggling and stuff like that. You know, uh, women didn't do that back then. Instead, she would hire men to work, you know, for her and uh, be her middleman and Prophet Muhammad was one of the men whom she hired for that she had heard of his trustworthiness remember he had been known as Alameen and so she hired him to hired him to manage her, her business and so he would accompany her caravans from to Syria and do the trading from there and this was not anything new to Prophet Muhammad because even as a child he would he would accompany his uncle Abu Talib on trips to Syria as well so he was familiar with trade he was familiar with the land of Syria before this so this is not anything new to him. It's not like he just, you know, came into uh, she just hired him because he was trustworthy alone. He had experience in that in that field also. And so and the proof of it was that after she hired him on as a, as her manager, as a manager of her business, you know, uh, on his first trip back from Syria, he had made her much more money than anyone else had before. And she always had to worry about people stealing her money or cheating her or you know people trying to take advantage of you know a widow a widow woman with all this money people trying to take advantage of her. she didn't have to worry about that problem because he was trustworthy and he brought her back much more money than anybody else had before so she was impressed by his honesty by his trustworthiness and by the fact that he made her a good deal of money you know coming back alhamdulillah so now she was impressed by this, and so she decided to pr make the proposal to him to mar for marriage. And she had been approached by other people before, but she had turned them all down. And so he was the first person whom she had actually pursued for marriage, that we know of at least. And at the time, she was 40 years old, and Prophet Muhammad himself was 25 years old. So despite the fact that so many men trying to marry her, she turned them all down, and she sent a proposal to Prophet Muhammad and he did accept her proposal, and alhamdulillah, they did get married. So now Prophet Muhammad did not have to worry about wealth anymore. So he did not have to worry about actually going out there and trying to earn a living, whether it's trying to build his own uh, caravan business like the other Quraysh had done, or whether it was getting into agriculture or anything like that. He didn't have to worry about that anymore. His basic needs of of um, uh, financial needs are pretty much taken care of. And... Part, this is partially spoken of in Surah Al-Duha, uh, which is um, uh, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Ba'da'audhu billahi min ash-shaitan ar-Rajim, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Wa'duha wa'layli idha sajaa ma wa'da'aka rabbuk wa ma'akala wa ma'akala wa lal-akhiratu khayrun laka min al-ula. Now, the tafsir behind the surah, first of all, it came down many years later, you know, but it came down many years later when there was a brief 
pause in the revelation and Prophet Muhammad says, uh, at the time he was thinking that maybe uh, Allah had had abandoned him. Uh, he was concerned that the revelation had to come down in the while. So he was wondering what was happening. And Allah sent this down as a comfort to him. And Allah swore by the by the morning brightness. Allah says, what do ha? Then he swears by the night as it comes into darkness. So Allah says, what do ha? One layli eva saja ma wadakarabuka wa ma kola. Allah says, By the morning brightness and by the night wind it covers in darkness, your Lord has not forsaken you, nor has he become upset with you. This is Allah speaking to Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Ma wadakarabuka wa ma kola. Walal akhira tu khayrun lakaminan ula. So skip down to the, the verses in, in, um, in question. Later on in in the sixth verse, Allah says, Alam Allah says, Didn't he find you as an orphan? Allah found Prophet Muhammad, I say found, don't mean not literally, but basically Prophet Muhammad was an orphan at first, but Allah gave him refuge. He gave him, even though his father died before he was born, and his mother died when he was just a young boy, and then his grandfather died a little bit after that, Allah still managed, Allah still gave him someone make sure he was taken care of by having him stay with his uncle Abu Talib. So no matter all no matter the the fact that so many people in his life died, Allah still made sure the Prophet Muhammad was was cared for. They still have family taking care of him. Then Allah says, He found you lost and then he guided you. Now Prophet Muhammad did not worship the idols before Angel Jibril came to him, but is the showing that Allah Guided Prophet Muhammad to the prophethood of Islam. And then Allah says, He found you poor and he made you self sufficient. So, Prophet Muhammad before marrying Khadijah, he had problems with wealth, but afterwards, now he married Khadijah, wealth was no longer an issue. And it's deeper than that also because it's not just you know pure physical wealth, it's also being satisfied with what he had. And that's something that Prophet Muhammad. Uh, exhibited later on in his life and throughout his life also that he was not someone going after wealth you know he was not I mean there's so many hadiths and so many stories about the poverty that he experienced about the difficulties he went through and even when he was the prophet and when he was the ruler of Medina and the undisputed ruler of the Medina people would come to him and give him gifts and he would turn around and give it away to somebody else right afterwards so Acquiring acquiring wealth was not an issue, you know, something that Prophet Muhammad really cared about. So, so they're not necessarily saying that, you know, suddenly he found himself rich, but basically saying that Allah t- is taking care of Prophet Muhammad throughout all the tragedies that he experienced in his life, despite the difficulties difficulties he had. Allah was always there taking care of him, making sure that his needs were taken care of, making sure that he was always always uh always had what he needed and always never had to rely on anyone else except for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that's basically what that's what uh the tafsir that uh, that uh, surah to duha is for and a real quick note you notice in the beginning of that surah surah to duha Allah swears by the morning brightness and by the the nighttime when it covered when it um when it becomes dark just an exam- just a, a, a quick quick reminder is that Allah can swear by anything he wants he can swear by the morning's brightness swear by the night swear by you know time when he says well asura he can swear by the sun he can Allah can swear by anything he wants to but us as humans we can only swear by Allah so just a rem- just something to acknowledge and re- keep in mind that while Allah can swear by whatever he wants to 
Uh, it's, we can't we can't say anything about that. We can't. Allah is the creator of all. He can swear by whatever he wants to. But us humans, we can only swear by Allah, nothing else. All right. So just keep that in mind that we hear people, you know, this is not a Tawheed or Aqidah class. Be careful about people swearing by their father or, you know, by certain prophets, whether it's by Prophet Muhammad or by Prophet Isa, you know, whatever person or creation of Allah that people swear by all that stuff is a form of shirk and we have to be careful of that as humans we can only swear as creations of Allah we can only swear by Allah himself just a short little side there now you may wonder and many people may wonder what is it with with these two individuals Prophet Muhammad and Khadija bin Khawailid they were 15 years apart Prophet Muhammad was 25 and she was 40 years old what did they see in each other why did how did why did they get married what was the attraction you know, this is in our time right now, we will see this as something, you know, not strange, but it'll be kind of kind of, you know, weird. Uh, you know, it'd be kind of strange also for such a young man to marry a woman in her and, you know, who was 40 years old. You know, you think that he could have, you know, he would marry somebody his age or younger. But why did he marry someone who was so much older than him? What was the reason behind it? And I've wondered about this myself. And from what I can conclude and from all the evidence, it all seems to point to the same thing is that quite simply, they just fell in love with each other. It's really just as simple as that. It is just a, a one of those things when two people fall in love. I'm not I don't want to get too overly romantic or Hollywood about it, but all the evidence from the Hadith and from the marriage and from the relationship, these two people, Prophet Muhammad and Khadija bin Khawailid, they just loved each other. They fell in love and it happens. I mean, I, I know as Muslims, we, we don't sometimes get too much into love because we don't, we don't want to be careful of the way Hollywood portrays it and which often leads to premarital relationships and or sex outside of marriage and stuff like that. So we want to be careful of that often and as Muslims. So oftentimes as Muslims, we try to maybe avoid the subject of love or try to downplay it a little bit. And there is some validity in that and not being too Hollywood about it. But the fact is that we are humans and humans have emotions. And one of the strongest emotions for humans is love. Another one is hate, but an anger. But love is one of the strongest human emotions. And this is an example. This is one situation where two people, despite the difference in age, despite the, um, you know, the I won't say irregularity, but the the fact that it was not a very common uh, time, a common thing for two people so far apart to get married, so far apart in age to get married, it did happen, and it happens even in our time now. It, it, it's not off, it's not very frequently, but it does happen. Two people just happen to fall in love, and this is just some. This is all there is to it. Somehow, Allah put love between their hearts, and that's that is what happened. And all of us, you know. Um, all of us here are people. Um, we're all humans. I'm sure that most of us, at some point in time of our life, in our lives, have experienced some sort of I don't want to say irrational, but inexplicable love for another person. I don't mean your children or your mother or something like that. You know, you know, love for someone of the opposite gender. You know, some. You know, it happens to pretty much anyone dealing in life. You fall in love with someone. Some may call it puppy love as a teenager or whatever you want to, but you do sometimes. All of us at some point in time develop strong emotional feelings for another person. And this is what happened with Prophet Muhammad and Khadija bin Khawailid. And, you know, love is a, oh boy, it's a, 
it's a deep topic. You know, sometimes it hurts and you know, sometimes it can be wonderful, you know, often leads to marriage and alhamdulillah when it does. And sometimes, you know, it doesn't always lead to marriage. You know, I have experienced it myself and alhamdulillah, I happen to marry my inexplicable love. But sometimes people fall head over heels for someone and it doesn't quite work out the way they want it to. I, I, on my website, you know, I, I get a lot of emails about people asking i want you know what do what can i make to make this person love me i love this person but he doesn't seem to respond and these things happen you know it just is i don't want to get into the whole issue of you know how to handle that type of situation when you love somebody or you have feelings for someone and those feelings are not reciprocated or they don't come back to you in the way that you expect but just to let you know that it does happen. We are humans, and love is one of the feelings that Allah has given us, and there's, there are many good reasons for it. But like all good things, there's also danger to it and bad to it as well if it's not understood and dealt with properly. So just giving you a little, a little information here that when it comes to situations like this, you know, it happens to people, you know, and it happened from the same thing here, this is what happened to Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and Khadijah. They fell in love. Now, they were married for about 25 years uh, from, we'll go into, we're not, you know, we'll talk about, you know, her death later on when that time comes. Inshallah. Now's not the time though, for it, however. But, you know, they were married for about 25 years. And during this time, Khadijah, Khadijah anha gave birth to four girls and some say two boys, some say one uh, one of the the two, if it was two boys, the names was Al Qasim and Abdullah, and but some, I mean, I, I heard more evidence for just just for just being Qasim, and Allah knows best. Now Qasim was his first son, his first child, and you know we know the tradition for Muslims. We name you know often fathers would take the child would take the kunya of when like they take a name of their first son, calling themselves Abu so and so. So my first son's name is Ibrahim. You'll call me Abu Ibrahim. Uh, if Prophet Muhammad said his first son was Qasim, they call him Abu Qasim. Now, um, for instance, Bilal Phillips, his first child was um, Amina, and so he, he's often called Abu Amina Bilal Phillips. And this is just a this is just Arab tradition, and it's you know people, you know the father. I can speak as a father, most certainly. I know I I like when people call me Abu Ibrahim, and it's a connection between me and my son, and that's. Doesn't mean I love Ibrahim more than my other four kids. Just the fact that you know this is my first son, and it builds that connection between the father and son. And even you know women can call themselves Um so and so, Um Ibrahim or Um Abdullah, whatever. And also it should be known, just to point the fact that it's not permissible for Muslims to name their first child Qasim, because uh, that was a kunya of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. There's authentic hadith in which he forbade us from taking his kunya. We can give we can give our children his name. So we can name your first child Muhammad and then call yourself Abu Muhammad, but we're not allowed to name our first child Qasim and then call us Abu Qasim. That's Prophet Muhammad's kunya and it's reserved only for him. So if you have any children or any sons, or if you're planning on having sons, or if you do have any sons, try not to name your first son Qasim. And you know, my son is named Ibrahim because initially I actually wanted to name him Qasim. But you know, when I found out this hadith, I had to um we went to Option number two, which was Ibrahim. And so my first son's name is Ibrahim, whereas my second son, his name is Qasim. And, but, you know, I'm known as Abu Ibrahim, not Abu Qasim. In addition to Qasim, Prophet Muhammad also had four daughters, Fatima, Zainab, Rakaya, and Umm Kulthum. And all of his daughters died except for Fatima during the lifetime of Prophet Muhammad They all grew up to adulthood, but they all died during his lifetime, except for Fatima, 
she uh, and she died six months after he did. You know, just more evidence of the difficulty and the, and the tragedy that, that occurred in Prophet Muhammad's life. You know, he he experienced a lot of difficulties. You know, to have at least five at least five children. No, he has six actually because he had another son named Ibrahim from um, from an Egyptian. Uh, I believe it was a, some people say it was a slave, some people say it was his wife, but she was Coptic. It doesn't seem I'm not sure if she'd be accepted Islam or not, but her name was um, um, Maria Al Qubatiya, Maria the Copt. She was a gift. He sent uh, when he became after the Hijra, he moved to uh, Medina. Prophet Muhammad saw him during the, there was a period of peace when there wasn't fighting between him and the Quraysh. He sent he was sent envoys to the different rulers around the land, and one of the envoys went to Egypt, inviting them to Islam. The Egyptian ruler, whoever it was at the time, did not accept it. But he, as a sign of goodwill, he sent back a slave, uh, Maria, back to Prophet Muhammad as, 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 a, as a sign of goodwill. And, you know, may sound misogynistic now, but that's the way things were back then. But So he sent a, um, a slave as a sign of goodwill to Prophet Muhammad even though he didn't accept Islam. The king of Egypt at the time didn't accept Islam. Still, so Prophet Muhammad took her as his wife, and she had one child named Ibrahim, but uh, Ibrahim... Um, died I think before the age of two and there's um there's a lot more evidence a lot more hadiths about that one Abu Qasim remember died before he even became prophet but I'm sorry Qasim died before Prophet Muhammad became prophet but Ibrahim died in Medina so there's a lot more evidence on that one and there's a you know a lot of hadiths around 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 the death of Qasim um stuff I'm sorry about around the death of Ibrahim uh his son Ibrahim that is but my point well, I was I got off track. It was that Prophet Muhammad experienced a lot of tragedy, you know, to have six children and see five of them die in your lifetime is a difficult thing for anyone. I mean, can who can you imagine, you know, uh, so many of your children dying, dying in your lifetime, you know, but despite the fact that he lost so much of his family, this is just his children. We're not talking about other people whom he loved, like his companions, his uncle, his uncles who died, his wife who died, you know, so many other people who died in his lifetime, but it never changed his demeanor. He was just as kind in his, you know, towards the end of his life as what was, was during the beginning of his life. And it helps inshallah for us. All of us will, will deal with some sort of tragedy. May Allah protect us from, you know, these sorts of tragedies. But if they do happen, you know, it is something to, to reflect upon how Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam dealt with so much more. And most of us don't have to deal with that kind of tragedy. You know, losing five out of six children is, 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 is I can't imagine, it has to be a very difficult thing. So just keep that in mind when you go through your tragedies, inshallah, that Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu did have a little bit, did have much worse. Now we're just going to go back into some of the proof about Prophet Muhammad's love for Khadija. As we spoke about how much he loved her, now even after she died, you know he still had a soft spot in his heart for her. Even many years after she died, so she died uh, around the tenth year that he became the prophet, and even at least another good ten, thirteen years after that, he still had a soft spot for her. He still had love for her, you know. And there's hadith where Aisha had one of his other wives we all know who Aisha is you know she asked him why did he she asked him I'm paraphrasing here why did he care so much about her when she was an old woman you know and now he's married to young Aisha and Aisha when Prophet Muhammad died she was about 18, 19 years old so 
This hadith, you know, she's probably even younger than that, maybe somewhere between the age of 16 to 18, Alondo's best. So she was very young herself, and she asked her, why did she, why do you care about, you know, this old woman who died, and why, why is he worrying so much about her? And Prophet Muhammad immediately rebuked her and said, don't say anything bad about her. You know, don't say anything negative about her because she supported me when no one else did. Prophet Muhammad speaking, she supported him when no one else did. And we'll get into that and you'll see how much support she gave him, inshallah, um, soon, hopefully. And despite the fact, you know, that no one else believed in him, she believed in him. And she was the first believer, in fact. And we'll get into that very, very soon. She was the first believer. And... In addition to that, she bore him children, except for uh, the Coptic wife that he was, well, we spoke about already, who gave, um, who had uh, his son Ibrahim. Khadijah bore; she had all of his children. And Aisha, despite the love the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam loved, uh, had for her, he definitely did love her. There's a hadith. I don't want to get off point a little bit, but there's a hadith where I believe Ahmed Ibn Al As asked the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, "Who did he love most of all?" And he said, uh, Aisha, so he said his wife, Aisha. Then he said, well, what about, he said, of course you're going to love your wife. He's thinking, I'm going to be honest, like, of course you're going to love your wife more than anybody else. Well, what about the men? Who do you love most? All the men. Then he said her father, who was Abu Bakr. And we'll get into that later on, inshallah. But it just shows that he did love Aisha now. He did, he definitely did love her. And there are many hadiths showing his love for Aisha. But Khadija had a special place in his heart. You know, all, all of his children came from her, except for Ibrahim and also the support that she gave him when he had no one else, you know, came from her as well. And even after that, Prophet Muhammad after she died, he would continue to send gifts to her family and her friends, even many years after she died. And this is another example of his love. I mean, we can go into the people. People can say things, tell things about Prophet Muhammad. Maybe he married her for money. He married her for status, whatever. If he had done all that, why would he continue to send her friend's gifts even many years after she died. I mean, if he had just wanted to do it for mar for money, I mean, why continue to send the gifts? I mean, he had no reason to do so after that. You know, he would have he would have inherited everything she had, and there's no reason for him to continue doing that. But it wasn't any of that. It's just that he loved Khadija so much that he was kind to her friends and family just because they were the friends of the woman whom he loved for almost half of his life. So that's that's something to think about there. Um, something serious to think about there so now we're going to talk a little bit more about how after he married Khadija and oh yeah one more thing I know I want to speak about I lost track for a second there the re people have brought up many reasons for his marriage to Khadija well, we, talked about, we talked about money Prophet Muhammad SAW never throughout his life before or after his prophethood never showed an inclination to wanting to acquire wealth. He never seemed to have a desire for more wealth. Wealth would come to him, he would give it away. I mean, he was the ruler of Medina, and when the Muslims were really, you know, in the beginning, it was tough for the Muslims, but after a while, the Muslims were pretty much kicking everybody's butt, pretty much. <laughs> they were winning war after war, or battle after battle, and they were pretty much unstoppable towards the end of the Prophet's life. And he could have acquired all the wealth he wanted, but he did not. You know, every wealth would come to him, he would give it away. You know, so there was no inclination of him wanting wealth. If he wanted wealth, he had more than enough access to it where he could have taken all that he wanted to, if he wanted to. But that was not his, his reason. People may say that maybe he married her for desire, for nobility, for status. 
But remember, he came from the most honorable tribe in Mecca, most honorable tribe in Arabia, and the most honorable clan within the most honorable tribe in Arabia. He was from the Hashim clan, which had the honor of caring for the pilgrims uh, who came to the Kaaba. So with given his intelligence and his ability to manage business, had he wanted to, and Prophet Muhammad saw something seriously wanted to, he could have easily been the head of his clan, maybe even the head of all of Mecca, had he just, you know, sat around and played his cards right. He could have had all the nobility and status he wanted to. He's evidently a very good organizer, very intelligent person, very good at business. He could have easily just waited until his uncles died off or just, you know, made, you know, exerted himself to the point where he became leader of all of Mecca if he just simply wanted status. He didn't have to marry someone for status. He could have easily done that, gotten that on his own just by the family he was born into and by his own natural abilities that Allah gave him. So, but, so there's no reason for him to marry Khadija, you know, for nobility. And there's no inclination, no indication that he desired money. He married her because he loved her. It's, it really is, as I mentioned before, it really is as simple as that. Sometimes it can be hard for people to wrap their heads around that, but that's really what it, what it was, and Allah knows best. Now, after he did marry Khadija, now, he didn't have to worry so much about money. This is true. He, when he married her, money was less of an issue. And he began to spend more time contemplating about the situation around him. You know, he began to withdraw he, as he approached his mid-30s, so his age of 35, 36, he began to withdraw from regular society as much. He wasn't involved in society. Well, another indication that he really wasn't someone, you know, hankering for status or position in society. People who want to get into politics usually start at a young age. So if he wanted to get into politics and the handling the affairs of the Quraysh and running Medina or running Mecca and stuff like that. He could have started at a much younger age. He had the money to really devote himself to, he had the money and the wealth and the time now. He could have devoted himself to simply trying to, you know, take over the Hashim clan and then, you know, run run Mecca all he wanted if he wanted to do that. But he didn't. Instead, he began to just become more contemplative, contemplative and just, you know, excluding himself, secluding himself away from other people except for his family. And began to, he began to spend more time in in the mountains surrounding uh, uh, Mecca and in the caves in the mountains surrounding Mecca and trying to really f focus. He, this is a, a time of spiritual awakening, so to speak. Uh, and Allah knows best how best to put, put this. Uh, before we go too far, I want to speak about two young men or two young boys who came into his life uh, around this time. The first one was Ali ibn Abi Talib. That was Prophet Muhammad's cousin. It was the son of his uncle Abu Talib and Ali was roughly about nine years old around the when Ali was about eight nine years old his father Abu Talib ran into financial difficulties he had Abu Talib was a very kind man he you know spent his money helping other people he's also getting much older so he couldn't be as involved in the trade business as he had been before and so he ran into some financial troubles and Ali was not the only son he had. He also had another son named Jafar, and he may have had others, but those I know too, uh, definitely for sure. Abu Tal um, Ali and Jafar were both Abu Talib's sons, and they both wanted to become a Muslim later on. Uh, Jafar and Ali, that is. Now, when in this time, uh, Abu Talib had run had run into financial difficulties. Prophet Muhammad offered to care for Ali 
as uh, you know to take to take that extra burden off his hand. He, you know, so that he, he was like, you had took care of me when I was a child, so let me help you now with this with this young man with Ali, so that you know make it a little bit easier for you because Prophet Muhammad had the extra wealth, he had the money, the time, and so he took Ali into his household, and Ali pretty much grew up with Prophet Muhammad uh, from that point on. Uh, until he got older, and we know, of course, that Ali wanted marrying his his daughter Fatima, Prophet Muhammad's daughter Fatima. So, you, it's a clear indication of of the close connection of that that family tie, right? The family ties right there. And Ali would also become the first male to accept Islam. However, at the time that he accepted Islam, he was just a young he was just a young boy. The first adult was Abu Bakr, and we'll get to that, inshallah. Don't know if we have time today, but we'll see. The other young man that came into his uh, Prophet's life was uh, a young boy named Zayd ibn Haditha. Zayd ibn Haditha was was not from Mecca. He was from a, a different tribe. I can't think of the name right now. But the point is that Khadijah went to, you know, basically slavery existed, existed at the time. And we're not going to get into the right or wrong of slavery. Just bear in mind that it did exist at the time. And so Khadijah uh, bought uh, Zayd ibn Haditha as a slave to more or less be like a companion to Prophet Muhammad And judging from this, I would be inclined to believe that Zayd came into that Prophet's household before Ali did. Because if he had Ali, he, there was not much need for Khadijah to get to, to you know, bring him a slave as uh, a young boy slave to help, you know, you know, bring the household or anything like that. So he brought in, she brought, uh, Khadijah brought Zayd ibn Haditha as a slave as and also as someone to help Prophet Muhammad through, you know, he had lost his son at the he had lost his son not too long before that. And so this was something to try and cheer him up and help him because he did love children. So he got Zayd ibn Haditha into his household. But the thing was that Zayd ibn Haditha how, we had to ask, how did he become a slave? How did he become get on the market as a slave? His his homeland, the city that he was from, the land he was from, it was invaded and he was stolen away as a young boy, as a slave, and then sold on the open market. Eventually, he wound up in Khadijah's hand and wound up in the household of Prophet Muhammad. And so now, people are now his after the war is over. His father, that is Zaid ibn Haditha's father, and his uncle, they began to track down, you know, their their son, their boy. They're trying to track down where this, where what happened to him, and they go from place to place, follow leads here and there, and eventually they track him down to Mecca in the Prophet's household. So they come to the Prophet, at that time he wasn't a prophet yet, but they come to Prophet Muhammad and they ask him if they can, they ask him to buy uh, Zayd back because that's basically where, even though he was biologically their son and their family member, in order to bring him back, they had to pretty much pay him. They were prepared to pay Prophet Muhammad for you know, whatever was required in order to bring Zayd back. Now, by this time, Zayd had probably been with Prophet Muhammad I'm going to guess about two, two to three years. Um, a lot of those, but I got to look up the exact amount of time. But he had been living with him for many years. But Prophet Muhammad um, he didn't want the money, but he didn't want to make Zay do anything he didn't want to do either. So rather than just accept the deal or the money for the boy, he said, well, let Zayd uh, choose for himself. If he chooses to go with you, to go back home with you, then you can he can go with you. You don't have to give me any money. But if he, stay, he wants to stay here, I, I'm not going to make him go. And so they asked Zayd, uh, what did he prefer to do? And Zayd chose to stay with Prophet Muhammad. That's how kind he was to him. And 
you know, the father and the uncle, they were very surprised at this. So you rather stay here as a slave instead of come back home with your own family. You remember the family relations at that time were very strong, but Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam treated him so kindly and he had grown to love him so much that he rather stayed in the palace with Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And Zayd ibn Haditha, of course, also eventually accepted Islam and he died in the Battle of Mu'tah many, 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 many years later. Uh, so during the time of, um, of the Hijrah, but after, after the Hijrah, it is. But the point is that Zayd preferred to stay with Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam than go back with his own family because of the kindness and the beauty and the love that he had for Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And after that encounter, Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam then he basically freed Zayd, saying that he's no longer he's not slave, and he began to call him. He said that this is now now my son. Basically called him Zayd ibn Muhammad. And from that point on until Allah forbade that sort of adoption. Zayd ibn Haditha was known as Zayd ibn Muhammad. So Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu basically adopted Zayd as his son. And this helped Zayd in the fact he was no longer considered a slave in that society. The society was still corrupt. And people who were known as slaves had a much lower status. And so he called him Zayd ibn Muhammad. And he was known as, as Prophet's adopted son or even as a son. And in that point of time, during the, that time of um, in Mecca before Islam came, when someone adopted you as their son or their daughter, you really, you know, except for the biological part of it, you were treated as a son or daughter, meaning you couldn't marry, uh, uh, an adopted son couldn't marry, you know, their sister, even though they were, there was no blood relation between them. They couldn't marry the, the daughter of their adopted father because that's seen as something evil because now they're, you know, they're considered like brother and sister. They would inherit from the father just like um, the other children would. They're really considered like their absolute children and this is just part of the ignorance of the society at that time because actually this is not really a good thing uh this is basically breaking the ties of, re of relations that allah had established and you know no matter how much love an adopted son has for his adopted father or uh, adopted father for his son the truth is that the real relationship that Allah has set in place is that biological father and the biological son. That is a tie that Allah has established. And so remember, one of the worst things a Muslim can do is to is to break ties of relationship, uh, family ties. One of the worst, worst things they can do in this sort of form of adoption, it does kind of sever that relationship because it makes it brings another person in as the father rather than the biological father. Whether there is emotional attachment there or not, the biological father and mother is the relationship that Allah has established and that must be preserved even it's repeated over and over and over again in the Quran and it's emphasizing the Quran how important it is to honor and to respect our parents even if they don't accept Islam we still have to respect them Allah gives very specific details about inheritance between family members and it is we cannot overemphasize how important family relationships is in Islam and so for this reason this form of adoption where someone pretty much throws off all of their you know family ties from the past and accept the, the family of someone else is not permissible in Islam all right so we have about 10 minutes left if there are any questions now would be a good time to discuss them and we can it's up to you. Uh, if you have any questions about anything anything that happened so far or about any of the previous classes, uh, I mean, so far we discussed, uh, just going over, we mostly spent most of the time discussing the Prophet's, Muhammad, Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam's family, 
uh, whether it was Khadija, and then we went on to uh, Zayd ibn Haritha, and then Ali ibn Abi Talib. We spoke a little bit about his uh, his uh, early life before marriage, how he was a um, how he was known as a trustworthy person. Inshallah. So uh, we covered quite a quite a bit today. If you have any questions? Now's a good time to ask them. Inshallah. If not, then we also spoke about the black stone, uh, the origin of the black stone, the um, the significance of the black stone. We anything else we can even discuss today? We spoke a little bit about the tafsir surat al duha. Spoke about the prophet's children, about the kunya. All right. That's any questions about any of those topics or anything else dealing with the life of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam? I, either I must be a very, very good teacher or a very, very bad teacher. <laughs> one or the other. For no one have any questions so far. Okay, the question is, um, in Islam, is it allowed to raise a child that is an orphan and leave that child marry one of your biological children? Hmm. Fick question. Remember, uh, the type of adoption that we have now in the United States and probably most other countries, where a person, where you can adopt a child and that child now becomes, according to the state, your actual child. You know, that sort of thing is not allowed in Islam. It is, of course, permissible and recommended to care for an orphan. Now, how we work this around in today's society, I don't know. I mean, I think then some states have it where you can be a legal guardian for someone without actually adopting them. That is, I believe in the state of Georgia, that's definitely permit, there's definitely a, a law there where you can legally adopt, I'm sorry, become someone's legal guardian. You know, like a foster parent in a way. In a way, Foster parenting, in, as it is in the United States, is kind of when a child is taken from a broken home and then put with another family, and it's kind of temporary, and the assumption is that eventually they'll go back. Uh, but they actually have another one where you can actually... You know, you can actually take, um, you can actually become a legal guardian through the courts for someone, um, you know, until they're 18 years old, but you don't necessarily adopt them, as so to speak, where they take on your last name and they're seen as your legal children, uh, as, as, you know, as your legal children. A lot of those best. I, I don't, I'm not a lawyer, but to answer your question, though, if you raise a child in your household, let's say you take a child in as an orphan and you don't go through the courts and make them your adopted child and you another thing about ado adopting children is that there are some really amazing tax credits for it you know that's probably why people do it. i think the government gives like thirteen thousand dollars for top for legally adopting a child so but anyway that's neither here nor there but the point is that if you take a child and you and you raise them as as an orphan and raise them in, in your household then yeah i mean as they get older there's no reason so long as they didn't nurse with the same mother you know if you take a young child in and let's say I adopt a, a young, you know, six-month-old baby boy, you know, and I have a one-year-old daughter right now, and my wife nurses both of them. And at that point in time, no, they can't get married because um, as they get older, you know, they would have both nursed, you know, my wife would nurse them both, and so no, they, those two can't get married. But if I bring in, say, a nine, ten-year-old boy and I have an eight-year-old daughter now also, and then ten years later they want to get married, there's nothing wrong with them getting married. Uh, first of all, I wouldn't, yeah, they'll be there, considered milk brothers, uh, so to speak. And so milk brother or sister is milk siblings, and so they can't get married. And 
I forgot the number of milkings. I think it's it used to be ten. It may have been lower, I think, than that. I, I don't don't quote me on the on the fic of how many nursings it takes for someone to become milk brothers. But I'm going to leave that to another time until I get more evidence on that one. But for certain, if they've been nursed, generally speaking, they've been nursed. They can't they can't get married. So, but if they just raise them up, then no, there's no problem with that. Uh, evidence is with Ali and Fatima. Prophet Muhammad raised Ali from the age of eight or nine up until adulthood. And Ali married the Prophet's daughter Fatima. That was his biological daughter. Now, Prophet Muhammad never adopted Ali, but Ali lived in his household for, you know, most of his childhood up until he became an adult. So there's uh, evidence right there that it is permissible. And they were, as a matter of fact, they were actually cousins. So they were even, Ali and Fatima were actually cousins. So they were actually, you know, close, close enough related. But if you just marry, if you just have bring a child into your home and you raise them up, then um, if there's no nursing, then there's no reason why they can't marry your your child. Remember, we can't, we should not adopt children the legal way anyway, where they take on your name and everything else. And I don't want to get too deep in that because I know there's a lot more to that than what I know. So I'm going to s- stop there where my knowledge is limited. And Allah knows best about whatever I just said. Wa'ayakum. All right. Any other questions? All right. Hopefully by next week, inshallah, we'll be able to get into the beginning of the revelation. And that will, then we're going to see the importance of the prophet's relationship with Khadija, as well as the relationship with his, with his uncle Abu Talib and how important they were. We're going to begin to see some of the enemies of Islam that first came up, came about Abu Lahab and Abu Jal. And while I'm on this, I realized that I'm, I'm, I made an error before. Uh, I don't know, the last class, class before that, I said that Abu Jal's real name was Akil. I was wrong on that. His actual kunya was Abu Hakam, which means father of the wise. And Prabhupada also saw him after he became prophet and Abu Jal um, exhibited his antagonism towards Islam. Prophet also nicknamed him Abu, Abu Jal, means father of ignorance. So I said Akil, I was wrong. Abu, Akil also means like intelligent or wise, and I got my my um, vocabulary mixed up. His name was actually Abu Hakam. So, um, my mistake on that one. And, you know, I, I, if I make mistakes and you, and you recognize them, you know, it's simple to point them out to me. Okay. Any other questions? Okay. All right. Well, once again, my dear students, I thank you for coming, for coming out and for participating. Alhamdulillah. I hope this is beneficial for you as a bit, as it as it was for me. Inshallah, next week hopefully we'll be getting we'll be getting more into the revelation, the beginning of the revelation, and you know that's hopefully it will be more much more. We we kind of skipped through the first twenty five. 30 years of the prophet's life very very quickly you just took three classes but now we're going to slow down a lot because there's much more evidence in the in the quran and the sunnah after the prophet after revelation came there's much more material to cover because there's more evidence whereas before this you know the evidence is kind of sketchy and it's not we have to refer to it you know the the evidence and the sources of the seerah before the prophet um so became the prophet 
you know, it's not as abundant as when after he became a prophet. And it's even more abundant after he makes a hijrah. But, but even in, the, in this 10 years, the 13 years that he was in Mecca, there's still a lot of information there. So inshallah, we'll get more into that. Inshallah, and that will probably will slow down and that will take some time to cover. All right. If there's nothing else, then we can close it out. Um, Subhana rabbika rabbin izzati amma sifun wa salamun ala al-mursaleen wa alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.